Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio. If you're a screenwriter, I really can't recommend this screenwriting software enough. When I sit down to write, I want to stay focused on my story. Arc Studio's minimalist and dare I say beautiful interface allows me to do just that. It has seamless real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, meaning that if you like to collaborate with other writers as I do, Arc Studio has all the tools to keep you and whoever you're working with, both literally and figuratively, on the same page. Importing and exporting other formats such as PDFs or final draft files is easy. And best of all, Arc Studio has an always free plan, so you can sign up today and start writing. If you spring for a pro plan, you'll be able to download Arc Studio's desktop and mobile app. You'll also get access to pro features like outlining and real-time collaboration. Head to arcstudiopro.com to take your screenwriting software to the next level. Check the link in today's episode's show notes to find out more and get writing. I wanted it to be a valentine to courage and to protest, to standing toe-to-toe with power. From the beginning, I didn't want the film to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. None of us had any idea how much about today it would end up being. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. Our guest this week is one of the most celebrated screenwriters in film and TV today. Aaron Sorkin is the storytelling titan behind The Social Network, Steve Jobs, The West Wing, Moneyball, A Few Good Men, Charlie Wilson's War, the list goes on. Across a glittering three-decade career, Aaron's screenplays, full of snappy dialogue, rousing speeches and engrossing drama, have imagined an America in which principled heroes stand tall against Goliath-like institutions. His latest film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which Aaron also directed, is no different. When a group of eight anti-war activists are charged with inciting a riot outside the 1968 Democratic Convention, the future of free speech and right to protest seems to hinge on the ensuing court case. It's a timely true-life tale that was this week nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. Aaron took time out of pre-production on his next movie to tell me how it took 14 years to bring Chicago 7 to the screen. We also delve into the troubling Trump-era political developments that gave the story new urgency, his own process when it comes to writing first drafts, the importance of writing dialogue as though your characters are yelling at the heavens, and what happened when he took a meeting with Marvel about making an Aaron Sorkin superhero movie. This is the latest episode in an awards season mini-series that we've been running speaking to writers behind this year's big Oscar and BAFTA contenders. And like all those other episodes, this is a spoiler-filled conversation. So if you're yet to see the trial of the Chicago 7, hit pause now, go check it out on Netflix, then come back as we delve into every detail of this great movie. Since we started Script Apart last June, we've had so many messages from you guys, the listeners, letting us know which screenwriters you'd love to hear on the show. Aaron, as you might imagine, is one of the most frequently requested names, so we're delighted to bring you this episode. Thanks as ever for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey Aaron, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, and of course, huge congratulations on all the Oscar nominations this week. 
Your team mentioned that you're deep in production on your next film right now. Did you get a moment to celebrate or have things been so busy on that project that it hasn't really sunk in yet? Um, we do start Monday. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I definitely have found time to be very happy um, and, uh, you know, talk to uh, uh, the whole gang, even though we can't be in the same room together, high-fiving. <laughs> That's good to hear. So, Aaron, this is a podcast about first drafts of great movies. So before we delve too deeply into this remarkable film, I wanted to ask, after three decades as a storyteller, what does an Aaron Sorkin first draft generally look like today? Are you someone who still splurges all your ideas onto the page first in this great big creative bloodletting? Or are you a meticulous planner and outliner who pretty much arrives at the story you want to tell in the first draft? It varies from project to project. Um, I, I am not, I, I've never been a meticulous planner. Uh, I don't do that. I've never written an outline. Uh, uh, the, the closest I get to planning is if I've come up with a first scene, um, I, a strong first scene with a strong intention and obstacle, a fun way to start. Uh, and I kind of know what the second scene is and a little bit about the third, then index cards will start to go up on my corkboard. And it's a little, it's a lot like walking it in the dark with a flashlight. You can only see as far ahead uh, as that beam will go, but the further you walk, uh, the further you can see. My first draft of A Few Good Men, which was the first film that I wrote, and it was based on the first play uh, that I wrote, was I think 335 pages long. Um, so I needed to do some cuts. The first drafts will be long. And oftentimes I tell people when you start writing a first draft, uh, and you get to page 40 and you, you realize, you know, you're changing your mind about some things. Don't go back to the beginning and start again. Keep going, get to the end, get to fade out because by the time you get there, you'll have learned a lot about what you're writing. You'll have learned that. Uh, this whole part of the story didn't matter. And this will pay off much better in the third act if you set it up better in the first act, uh, that kind of thing. You know, it's the old um, Michelangelo uh, putting a slab of marble on a table and just knocking away everything that isn't David. Um, uh, you get to the end of your first draft and now you can start knocking away everything that isn't David and building up the parts that are. I know there were many drafts of Chicago 7. So in the finished movie, there are three moving parts to this story driving it forward. You've got the riots, you've got the court drama, and you've also got this fascinating ideological battle behind the scenes between Tom and Abby. Were those always the pillars that you wanted to hang your story on right from the very first draft? Or did it take a couple of passes to realise that that was the right way to tell this story? First of all, uh, yes, you're right. I, th there have been several dozen uh, drafts of Chicago 7 uh, over the years, simply because uh, it took 14 years to make, so I kept writing it for 14 years. There's never been a screenplay, a play, or an episode of television that I finished. They just get confiscated. Uh, uh, you know, someone says, pencils down, we have to do this now. Uh, so I had a lot more time with Chicago 7 than, uh, than with anything else. I didn't, I wasn't rewriting things to, uh, to reflect events in the world. Uh, like suddenly we have these Black Lives Matter protests that are being met, uh, with, by riot police, uh, and they're swinging clubs and tear gas. I wasn't making changes for that. The world was changing to become more like the screenplay. 
in chilling ways. Uh, and uh, so you were asking about the early drafts and did I have, so yes, after the, uh, a pretty long research period, cause I didn't know anything about the Chicago seven. So there about a dozen good books, some of them written by the defendants. There's a 21,000 page trial transcript. Most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden who passed mm-hmm. away in 2016. He was very much alive uh, when I started. And so eventually the film organized itself into three stories that I was going to tell at once. The three that you named, the courtroom drama, the evolution of the riot, how did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest devolve into such a violent clash with the police and the National Guard. And then the story that I would have only been able to get from Hayden, not from the trial transcript of the books, the tension between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, two guys on the same side who plainly can't stand each other and each thing <laughs> the other is doing harm to the cause. I would say my first draft wasn't like that. Uh, it was more like just a dramatized Wikipedia page uh, uh, about the events. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll do this scene. I'll do this scene. I'll do this scene. I'll, I'll just tell the, this happened then this happened then this happened. Uh, and I, and I saw that that clearly wasn't good enough. Um, uh, I, I couldn't do a piece of journalism here. Uh, uh, this had to be a subjective piece of art. It had to be a story that I was telling. Um, and, uh, and so over the course of uh, 30 odd drafts, that's what it became. I'm glad that you mentioned the chilling ways, as you put it, that the Chicago 7 story had taken on this new urgency, if you like, in Trump's America. So all of a sudden you had this new wave of protests and a president who was openly gloating about beating protesters at his rallies. It's not just an American thing, this anti-protester sentiment that's been on the rise. I mean, Over here in the UK just this week, we've had this new policing bill go through Parliament full of quite frightening clampdowns on the right to protest. But from the sounds of it, you resisted the temptation to rewrite anything, to lean further into the timeliness of your subject matter. You almost didn't need to. Is that correct? Not a thing. Uh, Like I said, I wasn't... From the beginning, I I didn't want the film to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. None of us had any idea how much about today it would end up being. Uh, But I didn't make changes uh, to reflect uh, something that was going on in the newspaper uh, or on the news. Uh, Like I said, the world just kind of kept changing to be more of a reflection uh, of what was going on uh, in our film. Uh, You're right. It was uh, the election of Trump and the rallies that he was holding uh, where he would get nostalgic, you know, there'd be a protester to get nostalgic about the old days when we carry that guy out of here on a stretcher, I'd like to punch him right in the face, uh, all of that. And, uh, Steven Spielberg felt that the time to make the film was now. Uh, and by then I had directed for the first time, uh, with Molly's game and he was sufficiently pleased with that, that, uh, that he thought I should direct Chicago seven. Um, and we look last winter when we were making it, we thought it was plenty relevant. We didn't need it to get more relevant, but then May came along with the police shootings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the protests that followed. And uh, the grand finale on January 6th, when not just Trump, but several people stood at a microphone in Washington and did exactly what the Chicago seven were on trial for doing. 
I'd love to come back to the stuff at the Capitol a little bit later on. But but first, I think it's important to discuss how there's such intention and obstacle to your films. So someone wants something, but there's something in the way. Then through their actions to overcome that obstacle, we see who that character is. What's so interesting about Chicago 7 that you alluded to a moment ago is you have these two guys, Abby and Tom, who essentially share the same intention. They want the same thing, but their actions, their philosophies about the best way to achieve that goal, they're different. Uh, can you tell me about constructing their dynamic on the page and and whether or not you wanted to kind of maintain a kind of objectivity about th- those characters and their beliefs? Because I'd say the film doesn't end up announcing either one as the winner. Both of their ideologies are valid and kind of end up influencing the other, or at least that was my interpretation. Well, that's what, when you have that, when you have two strong opposing arguments and you can defend both of them, um, you you're going to be able to write some pretty good scenes, uh, I think. Um, and you're right. Bo- both uh, Abby's ideology and Tom's uh, are pretty easy to defend. Uh, and uh, you can find things about them that are admirable and you can th- find uh, uh, things about them that, uh, that you can criticize. There, you know, uh, in the wake of, uh, of what, started happening last May uh, or what was in the news last May, the police shootings uh, and the protests. There was, uh, there was a movement to defund the police, right? Is what it's called, which sounds like a movement to get rid of police departments, uh, which is not something I think that would be very popular with anyone. We want when we, you know, call the emergency number here. It's nine one one. We want someone to answer on the other end and come to our homes quickly uh, if there's a problem. And everyone would say, but it doesn't mean get rid of the police department. Defund the police doesn't mean get rid of the police department. It means use some of their budget for social services, things that really shouldn't be ha- uh, handled by armed officers. And I would say to anyone who said that to me, I know, great. You just have to change the name, okay? This is just a branding problem. You just have to change the name. You're scaring people. Tom and Abby might as well be having the same argument. Uh, if they were sitting, if they were old men sitting on a park bench uh, uh, today, they would be arguing about the same thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the conversation that those two characters are having seem to kind of mirror the conversation that the American left was having at the time of release in the run-up to the election. This question of, if you want progress... Do you chase practical, implementable change that might involve some compromise or some degree of making yourself palatable to those across the aisle? Or do you reject the broken system entirely like Abby does and call for total revolution? Tom's thing is change happens when you win elections. Um, uh, And Abby's thing is no, doesn't make any difference who wins an election. I read once you described the need to write characters, like they're yelling at God from the gates of heaven, making their case as to why they should be let in. And ever since, I, I always look out for it in your work. And um, there's so many scenes where that you get that sense between Tom and Abby that you're writing these characters as if they're yelling at God. And it's, it's, it's most important if you're writing an antihero. Uh, if you're writing... Uh, you know, someone like Nicholson in A Few Good Men or uh, the, the character of Mark Zuckerberg in, uh, in The Social Network. You can't judge that character. You can't decide that they're a bad guy. Um, uh, you have to write them as if they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven. 
Yeah, I was I was going to mention Jack in in a few good men. Although of course that character's viewpoint is completely at odds with our main character and completely at odds with the audience's viewpoint. It, it's psychotic, um, uh, uh, right? He's defending the murder of uh, of, a, of a young Marine um, uh, at the hands of his own platoon mates as something that made the country safer and that only he has the stomach uh, to, uh, you know, to, to handle that kind of world. Uh, but it, it's, it's always nice when you can have a character uh, make an argument that uh, the audience finds itself at least saying, huh, he's, you know, he has a good point. Um, uh, a, an argument you're uncomfortable agreeing with. So that's one big through line in your career, that sort of a sense of give even, uh, you know, anti-heroes and borderline antagonist characters, give them the same persuasiveness that you would give your protagonists. Um, What what else would you say you can see in Chicago 7 that is present throughout your career? What are the recurring Sorkin motifs, would you say? You know, I'm always uh, just a little uncomfortable describing my own work in those terms. I feel like it's for other people to do, but it's uh, heroes without capes. It's regular people who are risking something, in this case, risking a lot, uh, to do what they believe is the right thing. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a film, The Trial of Chicago 7, that you end up feeling good at the end. Uh, uh, with, uh, uh, your, it's a testament to the human spirit. It's a testament to courage, the courage of people who go toe to toe with power, uh, at great risk to themselves. Um, and, uh, at least over here, uh, our elected leaders like congressmen and senators, um, don't stack up well in the courage department to those protesters. Um, do you, I'm assuming you know who Cal- Colin Kaepernick is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, here's a guy who risks and it looks like has given up, uh, will not have a career as an NFL quarterback um, because he took a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality. Uh, that's, boy, is that ever walking the walk and putting your money where your mouth is. You can look forward to lots of Reddit speculation about, is Sorkin going to write a Colin Kaepernick film? <laughs> That's incoming now. Brace yourself. Um, so, so Aaron, I mean, um, you mentioned at the top of this how like often your starting point is literally the opening scene. And this film has such a fun opening scene that does a lot of um, you know heavy lifting in terms of it drops us right into this world, the political situation of the, at that time. Um, it also gives you a, a sense of who the characters are and the ways that they're different from each other, thanks to that really fun device of having the characters finish off each other's sentences, but often kind of take their meaning in a completely different way. Was that scene in yes. there from the very first draft? Uh, or um- That was in there from the first draft. Uh, I wanted to accomplish two things, or at least two things. Uh, uh, one, exactly what you just mentioned, that these, uh, there were, of course, eight members of the Chicago 7, um, and they are not all of the same stripe. Uh, you can't put them in the box of, oh, they're hippies, uh, uh, they're high, they've dropped out, they're, um, uh, they're just all about the summer of love. Uh, these were eight very different people. 
Uh, and, uh, and I wanted to show that while introducing our main characters. Uh, I also like to kind of parachute the audience uh, into a situation that's already going 100 miles an hour um, uh, and have them, any time you can get the audience to participate in the story, uh, uh, you know, get their minds working, make them sit forward uh, a little bit. Uh, to try to figure out what's going on. It's exhilarating uh, for an audience. I know it is for me uh, when I'm part of an audience. So I wanted to do that. I needed to show, uh, and finally, I, sh I needed to show a country coming off the rails. Um, uh, I needed to show the temperature uh, going up, that the draft call uh, is being raised. More and more casualties coming back from Vietnam. Um, uh, the, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and then we start hearing that thousands and then tens of thousands of protesters will be coming to Chicago. And then the other side, we're, we're hearing that Mayor Daley is bringing in thousands and then tens of thousands of riot police uh, and National Guardsmen. And we just know we're headed for uh, a, a big problem here. Uh, so I wanted to capture that in the prologue. I needed uh, our composer, Daniel Pemberton, to score the whole thing, the whole prologue, uh, wall to wall, and to not score to what was on the screen, score the opposite. Um, uh, I don't know if a composer has ever been given this direction before, but I told him that his music had to be ironic. What was originally scripted was that the whole thing was going to be against uh, the Beatles getting better all the time, uh, which would have been ironic. But there was just too much dialogue in there to use a song that had lyrics. So this was going to have to be original music. Um, uh, but I, I told Daniel it has to be as ironic as getting better all the time. It has to keep kind of jacking the temperature up uh, a, a little bit in the music. And I, I think he did a sensational job of that. And also, I guess, like, you know, the Beatles would have rooted it very much in that time. And, and this is not a period piece. I think I, I kind of was aware on my second watch that... You know, there's no kind of all the sort of signifiers of that period that you often see in a film like this weren't there, and it made it feel all that, the more relevant. That was to a today. very conscious effort, and the result that you just said uh, is music to my ears. Um, the getting better all the time, notwithstanding, which which isn't in the movie, uh, nor is any uh, source music uh, at all. It, it's all original score. Um, but I. Uh, consciously and, and made this clear every day uh, to the department heads. And we weren't going to lean into the sixties. Uh, like I said, I, I, I wanted it to be about today and not 68. We were going to be true to the period, but we weren't going to flood the frame with a sixties aesthetic with peace signs and tie dye and, um, uh, and psychedelic things. And it wasn't going to be the usual 1960s protest songbook. It wasn't going to be Sympathy for the Devil or Fortunate Son. Uh, it was going to be a film score, an orchestral film score to, just like you said, put as little as possible in between what the audience and what was happening on the screen. Hey there, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you that this episode of Script Apart is also sponsored by Coverfly. If you're a screenwriter who's still getting your work out there, you'll love Coverfly because they curate the best screenwriting talent discovery programs all in one place. 
On Coverfly, you can submit your script to writing fellowships, labs, competitions, and festivals, and track the status for your submission using your very own Coverfly Writer dashboard. To date, hundreds of screenwriters have met their manager or agent through Coverfly. These writers have gone on to write for massive Hollywood companies like Universal, Netflix, CBS, Amazon, and Blumhouse. Coverfly is helping make the entertainment industry a more accessible place using its data-driven talent discovery platform. If you're an emerging screenwriter with a finished script, be sure to check out Coverfly.com today. Check the link in this episode's show notes to learn more. Okay, back to the conversation. And a lot of the comedy in the film, Aaron, comes from Abby because, well, the real life mm-hmm. Abby was hilarious. Can you tell me how you viewed that character? Because while he's extremely funny, there's substance beneath that humor. The scene in which he wears the robes right. in court is an absurdist response to what he sees as an absurdist institution, the American judicial system. Uh, you didn't have access to, to the real life Abby the way you had access to the real life Tom. How did you go about getting inside his head? You know, I feel like I had some access to Abby by reading what he'd written, by looking at a lot of clips, um, and by deciding that, for me, uh, one of the most interesting things about Abby uh, that I could present was uh, what was underneath uh, the clownish exterior. Uh, I wanted to see that, um, and and it became... You know, when I was writing it, I didn't know that Sasha would be playing the part, but it became even more delicious uh, with Sasha Baron Cohen playing the part. Uh, someone who this is the first time he's he's played a dramatic role, but it's someone who we know as uh, maybe the the single greatest clown in the world, uh, right? Um, is playing this part, so. I'll tell you that at first, uh, I, I wasn't really sold on Abby. I wasn't seeing anything but the clown. Uh, I found myself agreeing with what Hayden would eventually uh, uh, become, that he's doing more damage than good. Um, that as kind of, a, a, you know, the right caricature of what uh, a progressive is. And then one of the first producer on the film, Walter Parks, uh, showed me a piece of film of Abby at a press conference. And we dramatize this uh, in the film. We show this press conference. It's very short, but it's Abby and, and Jerry Rubin. And in court that day, uh, there was a whole discussion about a joke that Abby made about calling off the revolution for $100,000. Give me $100,000 and I'll call the whole thing off. Was it a joke or was he serious? And at this press conference, a reporter is kind of hammering Abby on, what's your price? What's your price? Uh, uh, we know what you do it for $100,000. What's your price? What's your price? And you see suddenly in Abby's face, every drop of the clown just disappear. And he says, my life. Um, and it was a completely honest moment. It wasn't bombast. Uh, it wasn't bad movie dialogue. He meant it. Uh, and that's what kind of turned me on, uh, turned me around on Abby, uh, and made me look at him a little harder, made me want to be able to make his case why he should be allowed into heaven. 
That's interesting that that would be the thing that unlocked the character for you. Abby's just one of the, you know, fascinating ensemble of characters here. Bobby is another really, really captivating character. And I was amazed actually when I was kind of uh, preparing for this conversation, like looking up the events of the trial and what was, you know, fact versus fiction. And I was quite shocked that so much uh, was ripped straight from real life. I mean, the fact that Bobby was physically gagged in a trial where freedom of speech and right to protest <laughs> is under threat. You almost couldn't write it, it's so on the nose, but that's Well, you couldn't. I, I don't think if it hadn't happened, you'd be able to get away with writing it because people would say, well, this is, now I'm not buying any of this uh, anymore. So there doesn't seem to be any jeopardy, but it sure did happen. And uh, those mm. exchanges between Bobby and Judge Hoffman, um, uh, whether it was, you know, that, that, that final exchange where he's, he's dragged off and, and bound and gagged or any of Bobby's many objections uh, leading up to that. Uh, I, I didn't change anything. It's all from the trial transcript. And what do you think his role in the film brings to the movie? There's an extra dimension that it lends to the, the lesson of the film, if you like, or at least this was my take. Bobby's role in this story feels important in underlining how in matters of censorship, in matters of you know, governments clamping down on people's rights, the rights of people of colour are invariably clamped down with greater brutality and severity than those of white people. Without a doubt. Um, uh, I think, no pun intended, the jury is back uh, on that. In a trial where it's it's uh, hard to figure uh, what any of the defendants did exactly uh, to warrant being charged with this very serious crime. The fact that Bobby uh, was among them uh, was was just insane. Uh, Bobby had he was in Chicago for four hours. He, he had nothing to do with organizing any of the protests where anyone clashed uh, with the police. He was, as he said, put there to make the defendants to scare the jury, to make the defendants uh, uh, look scarier. We see that today, too. Um, uh, the people on the right badly want to conflate, you know, Black Lives Matter with terrorist uh, organizations. Uh, I want to call Black Lives Matter a, a, a violent organization, uh, that BLM and Antifa are the same thing when Antifa isn't really an organization. Uh, now this country has a long history of, uh, using black people, uh, as scary props and by the way bobby kind of makes that point in his scene with rylance and hayden when they come to tell him what's happened to fred hampton um uh that you know you and i are here for different reasons and what can you tell me about the evolution of the ending aaron were there ever other versions of this ending that existed in earlier drafts uh that question were there ever ever other versions of the ending there must have been early on uh, a different version of the ending, but I can't remember uh, uh, what it was. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. I ended it the way I did. First of all, I wanted um, not to sound trite. I wanted the movie to have a happy ending. Uh, I, I wanted to feel good uh, at the end of the movie. People, I want people to have that goosebump experience, the lump in your throat experience. Uh, I wanted it to be a Valentine to uh, to courage uh, and to protest, uh, to standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with power. 
and so everything was kind of headed toward that ending with uh, that ending with Hayden. Once again, to music uh, and, and to Daniel Pemberton, I told Daniel uh, before we started that uh, he wasn't going to be able to write the last cue of the film, which is usually a disappointment to a composer. They, they want to write the last music cue of the film, the way a writer wants to write the last scene of a film. Yeah. Um, because that was going to be the only time I was going to use source music. Hayden was going to start reading the names and we were going to hear a new cover that we were going to produce of here comes the sun, the Beatles once again, though I had now cut it from the beginning and we were going to feel great. Here comes the sun was going to start and it was going to feel just the way the song wants you to feel. It's been a long, cold, lonely winter. Um, but the skies are clearing up. Here comes the sun. Everything is going to be good now. And so we're in post. Uh, and we, we finally, you know, we're, we're roughing through the film and we get to the end and we put a cover of Here Comes the Sun there and it doesn't work at all. Um, I, I mean, not only doesn't the moment work, but suddenly the whole film doesn't work. Uh, uh, I mean, everything just amounted to nothing. You're feeling nothing uh, at the end of this. And so I went back to Daniel <laughs> and said told him what had happened, told him everything I just told you, and said, you're going to have to write something that's better than the Beatles. Uh, uh, you're just going to have to write something more emotional uh, than the Beatles. And he did. <laughs> Take that, McCartney. Um, well, Aaron, your films have always seemed to me to be these examples of how conversation, persuasion, decency, reason, these things can win out. And I, I think that's true of Chicago 7 too. You managed to pull through the Trump era with that belief seemingly intact, this film would suggest. Were there moments, though, where that belief was challenged and where you wondered whether you would still be able to tell these tales at the end of it about the power of good old-fashioned logic, reason, decency, and so on? Yes. Uh, yes to everything you just asked. Yes, there have been many moments uh, uh, where, where, where that belief is challenged. But I also don't feel like... Uh, I don't feel like you, you have to um, be naive to to write as if you're naive. If, 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 do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't feel like you have yeah, to be yeah. naive to write optimistically, uh, uh, to write romantically, to write I, uh, idealistically. Um, you know, uh, I, I remember doing an interview I don't know, a while ago, months, months ago, um, uh, uh, Trump was still in the White House. He's contesting the election. He, he's saying it's a fraud. And an interviewer asked me, um, you know, if I could write the end of this, uh, uh, how would I write it? Um, and I never thought about that before. And I said something like three powerful Republican senators walk up to the White House, go to Donald Trump and say, it's time for you to go. That interview was published and I just noticed that people were very unhappy with me for saying it because it showed what they felt was a typical Democrats, typical liberals, um, naivete in believing that the Republicans would ever do anything right. I wasn't saying what I think is going to happen. I was asked, how would I write it? Um, I knew what I just right. described wasn't going to happen, that these Republicans have demonstrated over, over and over again 
that their spines are made out of oatmeal. Um, uh, I was asked how, and if I was going to write it, I would write the more optimistic version. I'm not a journalist. Uh, uh, so it's, it's not important to me to write the way I think something would happen. Which takes us back to that topic that we touched on at the top of the show. You have become uh, like a chronicler of modern American history. It's an interesting sort of divide in your career. Like early on, there was these situations and characters that you told stories about. They were wholly invented. But, uh, you know, recently, a lot of your work has come from real life inspiration points. What's it like to, uh, you know, live with that? And do you find yourself as a screenwriter and as now a, a director sort of watching moments like the attack on the Capitol and thinking, well, have I got a take? How would I approach this? Uh, I do. That's a vocational hazard. I kind of look at anything and think, is there a story there? <laughs> uh, my, my first thought is, is that a play? It's always, is, is that a play? Uh, if it's not, okay, is it a movie? Is it a TV series? Is it anything? Um, but I, uh, I didn't intend to... The first time I wrote nonfiction was Charlie Wilson's War. And uh, when I was done with that, I said, I'm never writing nonfiction again. Um, uh, did, certainly not where the people are still alive. Uh, and right after that, I wrote The Social Network. And then right after that, Moneyball. And then Steve Jobs. And then Molly's Game. And now Chicago 7. So it's been since Charlie Wilson, nothing but uh, nonfiction. And... What you need to do at some point in the process is kind of fall out of love uh, with with the facts, fall out of love with with the journalistic version and have these people treat these people as characters in, in your story. OK, this is my Tom. This is my Abby. This is my Bobby. This is my courtroom. You have to treat it like that. Well, Aaron, I could sit here and talk about this incredible film and your incredible career all day, but we're running out of time. So I just want to ask one last question before we go. We're fast coming up on 30 years since A Few Good Men, or at least the, the screen version. You have achieved so much in that time. Is there anything that you've not done yet that's a little bit different that you'd still love to explore? And I ask because I remember in 2017, you telling reporters on, I think it was the red carpet for Molly's Game, that you had some meetings with Marvel and DC coming up. <laughs> what happened there? And is that a, a type of filmmaking that you'd still be open to exploring? I had terrific meetings with Marvel and DC. Um, I don't... I, I love their movies. I just don't know if I'm qualified to uh, uh, to make one of them. Um, but to, to answer your broader question, is there anything I haven't done? There's plenty uh, I haven't done. Um, uh, but mostly, you know, one of the nice things about being a writer, you, you get better as you get older. Um, so I don't think any writer wants to think that they've already written the best thing they're going to write. Um, and I hope I haven't. So I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to tell stories well. Well, this has been so much fun, Aaron. Congratulations on this great movie and best of luck at the Oscars. I really appreciate that. Thanks very much. It has been fun. You know, my fingers are crossed that it gets to happen in person because in my head, a scenario keeps playing out where you run into David Fincher, uh, you know, grab a drink at the bar and one of you says, hey, 
So about that social network sequel. Okay, I would love that to happen. <laughs> I'm going to send in this little clip. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take it easy. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us script apart podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>